Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Ariel Levy, whose latest book is The Rules Do Not Apply, a memoir. Ariel Levy is also the author of Female Chauvinist Pigs, Women and the Rise of Raunch Culture, She has been a staff writer for The New Yorker since 2008, and before that was a staff writer at New York Magazine. This particular book deals with a pregnancy that ended badly, deals with a relationship that ended badly, and also deals to some degree with your work as a journalist. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seemed that the Rules Do Not Apply might have grown out of expanding an essay called Thanksgiving in Mongolia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely it did. I wrote the essay Thanksgiving in Mongolia, and then I realized I had more to say, and then I wrote the book. How did you choose to expand it then? I mean, did you realize that you needed a different narrative structure? Well, I just had more to say. It was just really very much about having always wanted to be an adventurer and a writer and then eventually wanting to be a mother and having that quest come to an abrupt and extremely painful ending when I was on an assignment in Mongolia. You know, that was all I was getting at in that piece. This book is how I got there and where I went from there. Did you use real names for these people in the book? No, I used pseudonyms for my former spouse and one or two other people. But everything in it is true insofar as I'm capable, you know, it's my version of the truth, it's my story. So it's told through the filter of my experience. Speaking of filters of experience, every time I try to sit down and think about writing a memoir about interviewing hundreds of writers, I always get caught in trying to think about making myself look good. How easy or hard is it for you to take that, throw it out the window, and just realize that whatever comes out, even if it doesn't make you look good, is going to be there and truthful? Well, I mean, this was in many ways a story about loss and grief. And I think a big part of grief, especially if what you're grieving is a miscarriage, there's a lot of shame around that. I've now heard from tons of women since that story came out and more since the book came out who've experienced, you know, the stillbirth and miscarriage and lost children. And there's always shame and there's always self-recrimination. So there's a ton of self-recrimination in this book. So I I mean, if anything, I certainly did not make myself look good. You know, (laughs) that was not my concern. And what about the uh, people like your ex-partner? Did you give any thought to that? Tons of thought. Yeah. I mean, she was the first person who read this book before I turned it in. I said, read this. If there's anything you can't live with, I'll take it out. And she's a really generous person. And she's always been really supportive of me as a writer. And she said, this is your story. I'm not going to censor you. You tell what you need to tell. And your parents? Oh, I wasn't worried about them. (laughs) That stuff happened 30 years ago. They can suck it up. And they have. They love the book. Was there any difference in terms of writing this book 
than writing, say, a profile for The New Yorker? Well, the difference is that when I'm writing for The New Yorker, I'm piecing together the truth out of what other people tell me. So I'm doing the best I can, you know, as journalists, that's what we do. We take information from various sources and we get enough of it until it lines up so we think we are as close to the truth as we can get and then we tell that story. With this, I was there, so I knew the story. So that was the major difference. And creating the narrative was, I guess, easy because it's your own life. I wouldn't say it was easy. It was hard work, this book. It was difficult to figure out how best to tell this story. I mean, I think it being my own life made it harder, not easier, to figure out how the story ought to be unraveled. When it's unraveled, it means that some material has to come through exposition. Some of it is flashback, and that becomes very difficult. How do you balance the two and not get caught? At this point, is there something instinctive in you that tells you when to stop? Yeah, that's the thing I was going to say is I don't really know how it happens. Like, I've been doing it for 20 years, and I can just sort of feel in my body, in my stomach, when I've hit the right structure. And until I get there, I just keep trying new ways until it sits properly. That becomes an issue because you have to balance what's happening to you emotionally with the journalism stories. When I'm doing magazine pieces, when I'm doing journalism, it's not really emotional. I mean, I care often about my subjects and, you know, I wouldn't be writing about these things if I didn't care about them. But when I'm writing an article for The New Yorker, my primary loyalty is always to the reader. And frankly, I mean, I think my primary loyalty was to the reader in this book, too. You know, I wouldn't be publishing it if I didn't feel that I'd done the best I could to serve the reader's interest. Like, if it wasn't for the reader, if it was for me, then it would be a journal. It wouldn't be worthy of publishing. Did you have fact checkers? No. On this book? No. Yeah. (laughs) I don't need a fact checker on this book. No. I know that the fact checkers at the New Yorker are really, really strict. Are they as strict now as they were five years ago? Definitely. Yeah. Sure. Of course. (laughs) And David Sedaris told me that he'd write a comic piece and then they'd call his neighbors in France. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've had that conversation with him. I'm actually, I'm going on tour with David Sedaris in June. I'm doing a bunch of appearances with him. We've had that conversation, like how funny it is when you make a joke and then the fact checker calls to check the joke. And they do that. Yeah, they check everything. Everything in The New Yorker is as true as we can get it. We do not do fake news. Your most recent piece on Catherine Opie, the photographer, what kind of fact checking did they do in that? Well, so, Kathy Opie told me, like, the story of her childhood, and they didn't just call her to make sure that was her version. They called her brother to make sure it squared with his vision. They scared, They called her mother. They called, you know, everyone they could possibly call to make sure that what she said wasn't just her memory. It was as close to the truth as we could get it. When working on the rules do not apply, is some of that now so internalized that you feel a little fact checker in your head going, wait a second, did that really happen? No, because I have notes, because I've kept journals since I was a little kid. So I can check. I have my own, like, just like when I write articles, I have my notebook and I can just see what I, because, you you know, your memory is fallible and that's why you take notes, you know? Ariel Levy, let's talk a little bit about some of the content of The Rules Do Not Apply. You go into some detail about how you came to be a writer. Now, you say now you were always having journals, and this went back to how far in your life? I don't really remember. Probably like seven, eight years old. 
And were your parents encouraging? Did they know yeah. anything? About well, my it? dad's a writer, so I grew up. My dad writes copy for various nonprofits. For like, if you name any lefty cause, chances are my dad has written a year-end statement or a big donor appeal or brochure for them at some point. So when I grew up, my dad was always like lying on the floor in the living room with this yellow pad, crossing things out and rewriting things, blah, blah, blah. So it seemed like a perfectly natural thing to me that that's what adults do is write things down and scratch it out and talk to themselves about what they wrote. So I saw someone doing it. And my mom, since I was pretty little, was like, of course you'll be a writer. Of course, of course you can do that. So she's always been very encouraging. Did they ever read your journals? Once! Now that you mention it, once when I was 13 and my mother had a feeling that I had smoked pot this one time, which of course I had, she read my journal and confirmed her hunch. Now that was very naughty. You should not read your kid's journal. On the other hand, I had indeed been smoking pot in uh, Sheep's Meadow in Central Park with these other kids. So she got me. But she didn't comment on the grammar. (laughs) No. At what point did you kind of 14, not 13. Let's be reasonable. 14, not 13. Thank God. Anyway. So you always knew you were going to write. even. I always knew I wanted to. I mean, I don't think I always knew I was going to be able to do it professionally, but it's always what I wanted to be. I always wanted to be a writer. I never wanted to be anything else. And the first big gig was? New York Magazine. And how'd you get hired? When I was 22, I was, you know, right out of college I got an internship for the gossip column at New York Magazine. So, like, I remember my first day on the job, I had to call Martha Stewart's daughter and say, you know, do you have any feelings about your father having a baby with someone other than your mother? And I remember she said, not any that I want to share with a journalist, which is a perfectly reasonable answer. But it was a good way to learn how to just call people up and ask questions. I mean... You know, if you start off asking, like, really appalling questions like that, then the much more decorous questions I generally get to ask start to seem less difficult. Were you aware of, say, that New Yorker style? I mean, had you been reading The New Yorker, too, along with everything else? No. uh Uh-uh. I mean, that was at New York Magazine, not at The New Yorker. Right, I know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And no, I didn't know anything about magazines at all. And I I didn't grow up thinking I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a writer. I didn't realize how great it was to be a journalist until I started doing it. Were you thinking fiction then as you were growing up? Probably. You know what I mean? Like I didn't have a very, I had a child's romanticized conception. Probably I was thinking fiction. I don't know what I thought. I just thought writer was the profession that went with the kind of woman I wanted to become, which is one who's free to do whatever she chooses. Did you write short stories at all? I did. I did. I did. When I was a kid... I wrote like little crime story, like little insane crime stories. I was really into the, the Pink Panther and Cato and all that. So I wrote some stories like that when I was little. And then when I was in college, I think I tried to write some short stories that weren't really fiction. They were really just personal stories that I called fiction. And at some point pretty soon after that, I realized I'm not a fiction writer. I'm no good at making things up. I'm good at reporting. Ariel Levy. Was it at the New Yorker? Because it's actually, you talk a little about it in the book. Did you begin to get that feel for narrative that becomes a great part of all of your writing in the New Yorker? I think that I learned how to write while I was at New York Magazine. I had a mentor, an editor named John Homans, who really taught me. And the way he taught me 
was by frequently saying, oh, that's terrible. He has a very distinctive speech pattern. He says, he'll say, oh, that's good, Miss Ari, but that part's terrible. You know, so that's how I learned what was terrible is he would tell me in no uncertain terms. So I had that drilled into me. I mean, I don't think I would have gotten hired at The New Yorker if John hadn't already sort of had his way with me and whipped me into some kind of shape. And then The New Yorker, what I got to do, what I still get to do there is write longer pieces than I was able to do at New York Magazine. And also everything at New York Magazine had to somehow be about New York. And that's not true for The New Yorker. And that's a lot of freedom. Your recent pieces, not that there are that many of late, do veer between very, very long, like the um, Kathy Opie piece, to shorter ones, like the one on Italian women. Oh, that was just a little talk of the town for fun. Is it the same kind of situation there? I think David Brandt told me that you kind of say, I want to write on this, and then you have pretty much a few months to just do whatever you need to do? You have to know what the magazine needs or wants. Like the reason David Grant or I can go in to our boss and say, I want to do this story, I want to do that story. The reason he says yes is we wouldn't pitch the stories if we didn't have a pretty good sense that they were right for the New Yorker. We wouldn't bother, we wouldn't waste his time with pitches on stories that didn't fit. And then, yeah, it depends on the story and it depends how many stories you've been contracted to write that year. And as you say, like I've been way slowed down because I've been writing this book, so I haven't right. been doing as many. So you have, as, you have more time or less time depending on how many you need to get done in a year. A contract, what do they say, like four or five long pieces? No, we get paid by the word. We're staff writers in name only. I mean, we, we're contractors. You'll approach him and say, I want to do a piece on, on Kathy Opie and I want it to be a long piece. And he'll no, go, no, 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 no. I'll say, I want to do a piece on Kathy Opie. And I'll explain why. And then he'll say, okay, I'm interested enough for that to be short or I'm interested enough for that to be long based on whether he thinks it merits it. He, meaning our boss, David Remnick. So then how long does he give you? However long it takes to say, I need it for like November or whatever? Well, it depends. Like if you've got a story with a news peg, then it has to be done in time to come out with the news. I mean, so I've done plenty of stories that that we had to whip around. Like I did a story about Callista Gingrich, the wife of Newt Gingrich, when he was uh, running for the Republican nomination years ago. That had to come out fast before he dropped out of the race, you know. So, like, it depends. I mean, it just totally depends on the story. In your book, you choose to focus on a few stories and leave others out. Mm Mm-hmm. Was there any kind of plan in which ones you chose to talk about? Obviously, you can talk about Mongolia, but I mean the other ones. Yeah, I chose to talk about the stories where the themes that I was writing about in the story mirrored the themes of the book and mirrored what was going on in my life that I was writing about in the book. Does that happen to some degree why you would choose? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it happens all the time. I mean, and also, I'm not very good at remembering dates and I'm not great with time. I remember what was happening in my life often by what story I was working on. I mean, since I've been an adult, I've always been working on a story. And so when I, uh, when I try to think of what was that period, what was that period, I think, oh, that's when I was writing about Mike Huckabee, or that's when I was writing about Nora Ephron, or, you know, whatever, whatever it was. They're both in the book, but particularly there's a little about Huckabee, who you really kind of liked. Well, I'm very disappointed in him. I mean, the fact that he's been a Trump supporter, it breaks my heart because what I thought he was about, I mean, I didn't agree with any of his politics, but I thought he had a consistent, an internally consistent worldview. 
And the fact that he's a Trump supporter tears that up for me. So I'm very disappointed in him. He is a very nice person, but I don't see how you can be thoughtful and reasonable and support this president. I just don't, uh, to me, that doesn't add up. To me, it began not adding up long before that. We don't have to go into it, but after seeing him on, I guess, Bill Maher way back when, you kind of get one idea and then it's just completely through the roof and you're going to see even believe this nonsense. Right. Well, he does. I mean, I thought he believed a lot of it. I can't square in my head the stuff I thought he believed with him supporting Trump. I can't work it out. Well, the entire Trump phenomenon doesn't make any sense to me anyway. I mean, right. 40% of Americans still support this guy. It's like, uh, is it something that people talk about at the New Yorker? I mean, we're so far away from it here in Berkeley. It's like another universe. Oh, yeah. I mean, we have to work hard to talk about anything else, ever. You talk about the trip to Mongolia and your own guilt in going because of the, um, I guess, the miscarriage that occurred while you were there. The book is finished, and, you know, then you go through the various processes to get it published. Are you a little more comfortable today than you were when you finished the book? Sure, yeah, of course. I mean, feeling self-recrimination is very common for a woman who has a miscarriage. I've since learned from talking to a lot of women who've had miscarriages. Like, it's part of the process, it seems, is feeling guilty about it, feeling that you've killed your child. With the passage of time and getting through the tunnel of grief, I mean, I think at first grief is something you live in, and then it's something that lives in you. So I'm still, I'll always have a hole in my heart for that baby and I'll always be sad about it. Mm. But I've talked to enough doctors now who've told me that was going to happen in New York. That was, it had nothing to do with going to Mongolia. So I no longer feel, I no longer think, oh God, if only I hadn't gone to Mongolia because it's just not scientifically reasonable to think that. Are you okay with what happened with the woman called Lucy? My former spouse? I'm really sad. I'm really sad that our marriage ended I'm really sad that we cause each other so much pain. You know, we care about each other a lot. We're still, we'll always, I think, I hope, be in each other's lives. But I'm sad about all of it. But the thing is, I've accepted it all. And that's what this book is about, is what do you do with loss? I mean, not everyone's going to have a miscarriage in Mongolia. Not everyone's going to have their spouse go to rehab two weeks after they get back from having a miscarriage in Mongolia. But everyone's going to have loss. That's the price we pay to keep being here. And this book is about what do you do with that? How do you how do you move through that? And what can you gain from loss and grief? And what I got out of it was liberation from the delusion that I was in control. I've never been in a relationship with an alcoholic. I have been in a relationship with someone who lied to me, mm. and I kept looking the other way. The events are different between what happened to you and what happened to me in various areas, but the feelings that emerge are pretty universal. One thing I've discovered, because it happens a lot in fiction, is the more specific we talk about our own lives, the more universal Isn't that or amazing? others. Absolutely, it's so peculiar that, but it's really the truth. I don't know why that is. I mean, I think, you know, I'm writing an article for The New Yorker right now about the fiction writer Elizabeth Strout, who wrote the beautiful book Olive Kittredge, for which she won the Pulitzer. And she said to me that the thing she loves about fiction is that she's always been fascinated by 
how none of us will ever know what it's like to be anyone else. We'll just right. never know. And she said, you know, the closest you get is fiction, is reading about a character's experience, right? And I thought that was a really interesting point. And I think at its best, nonfiction can do that too. If a character is, is adequately developed, you can go inside another character's head and feel their feelings and feel just this resonance, like that your life is like hitting a note that harmonizes with theirs and somehow you're connected. That's what writing's there for, I mean. Are you aware, like say in the Kathy Opie piece, whether you're nailing it that way? Well, I mean, the thing about writing magazine pieces is that they have to get finished, right? I mean, we have deadlines and we have right. a magazine to fill, so they have to get done. On the one hand, you don't have the luxury to then monkey around with something endlessly. But on the other hand, I think it's kind of great because it makes you less precious about what you're doing. So what I'm always doing, whether I'm writing for the magazine or I'm writing a book, I'm just trying to do the very best I can. I'm just trying to write as well as I can on every single sentence, on every single page. I'm just trying to do my best. And I'm always aspiring, you know, to hit that note. But whether I do or not, I mean, I just keep going. And that's my advice to anyone who wants to be a writer is you just have to keep going. You just keep going. When I do an interview, sometimes I walk in and say to myself, well, you know, if this sucks, I don't have to air it. And that kind of frees me. I mean, I will air all of them. If it really sucks, then it won't get published. But I would have to really screw up in a way I'm not really allowed to. You know, like, we've got a job to do and it has to get done. Let me ask you a question about the Kathy Opie piece because she's a photographer and there's a couple of photos in the piece, but it's your job as a writer to make me as a reader feel as if I'm seeing pictures that I'm not seeing. Right. How do you go about doing that? Trying to describe not just what they look like, but what they feel like. And that's, of course, very personal. It's what they feel like to me. It may not be right. what they feel like to anyone else, but that's all I can give you because I'm, you know, I'm in here. I'm in this person. That's all I got. But also, I mean, trying to give some context, of, you know, for what they might be summoning in terms of the history of photography and, and what they mean to her. I mean, that's the main thing, right? It's a profile of her, so I have to be able to convey what they mean to her. Do you worry at all about your own presence in the profile? I know that some writers will try to keep themselves out of the profile, but, you know, you're in there sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I try to keep it down to a dull roar. Like, I don't want to overdo it. But, I mean, if it's useful, I use it. You know, if I think there's some value in admitting that I was there and that I'm a person who, you know, was involved in a dialogue or wh whatever it is. If it's of use, then I'll use it. But I, it's not my agenda to try to get myself in there. I mean, I think that's one of the difficulties in writing a memoir as a journalist is that you're used to trying to keep yourself out of the story. And a memoir is a story about yourself. So it's a very different feeling. On the other hand, if you were to read it five years from now, on some level, you'd be able to separate yourself out a little bit and go, you know, read it as as if someone else is. We'll see. In five <laughs> years, I have no idea, you know. No. I mean, I did try to do, a couple people have said to me that the memoir feels repertorial in style. It's like yeah. I'm a reporter reporting on myself. And it makes sense to me because right. I've been doing that kind of writing for 20 years. So why wouldn't I write that way. It's the only way I ever learned how to write. 
I think it works well for talking about something as emotional and as intense as losing a baby, losing a marriage. I like the idea of writing about that with an almost clinical specificity instead of from a purely emotional point of view. Well, when you're writing about your friends, you can't really focus too much. It's not their story, but they're part of your story. And that that seems to be a kind of difficult line, or is it? No. I mean, I think the difficulty was just not overdoing it because I love them so much. Right. You don't want to be triacly, you know, you want to keep it clean. So, you know, I edited it down so that I thought there was the right amount of my friends and the right amount of adoration. You know, I don't want to gross the reader out. I don't want the reader to be going, all right, already, I get it. You like your friends, you know? <laughs> you came to the New Yorker and you had a meeting with Remnick and you didn't think you were going to get the gig because you were coming from a somewhat different place, which is, you know, write about sexuality. But he went for it. You found out, what, a couple of weeks later? In fairness, I don't only write about sexuality. What happened was that David said when we first had lunch, like, okay, so what do you think the New Yorker's missing? And of course, my first response was nothing. The New Yorker's perfect. And he sort of rolled his eyes at me. And then I thought about it. And I thought, all right, well, what's the truth? What do I really think? At that time, I thought if an alien had only the New Yorker to go on, the alien would conclude that earthlings don't really care about sex. And that's not true. And as I was saying that to him, it occurred to me, oh, wait a minute, I can write about that. So then I said, oh, you know what? It occurs to me, I could do that for you. I mean, I, I know I sound like an idiot and it's because I am one. I mean, I just really, that's how it happened in real time. I was like, I actually think I have something I could contribute that would be of use to the magazine. But of course, I don't, I don't just write about sexuality. Right, yeah. And... I'm writing about it less and less because I'm bored of it. Speaking of not sexuality, you interviewed Berlusconi? Years ago, when he was in the midst of that bunga bunga scandal, if you remember. Oh, God, it was such a fabulous tabloid story. There was all over the world, there were these headlines about him having these, these orgies at Arcore, his palace, his uh, piazza in, in Milan. And they, they somehow called them bunga bunga parties. So... I went to do this story about, and he was on trial. He was on trial for allegedly having sex with this underage girl called, her nickname was Ruby Rubicori, which means Ruby Heart Stealer. So yeah, I went to Italy and um, covered his trial and met Ruby and met some of the young women who were, you know, who he had put in government positions, who he had met through his sex life, (laughs) basically. The thing that... I was trying to do. I mean, if it was just a story about crazy sex parties and this trashy old dude, the tabloids can do that very well. I, they don't need me for that. What I wanted to do with it was draw a connection between that and the way Berlusconi had remade Italian media from this very dry, it was very dry before he came in it. And then he sort of remade Italian media copying the American sort of dynasty, Dallas, all those shows about wealth and sex and consumption. And he had remade Italian media in our style. And then I wanted to show how, you know, Italy was a country where things were not good for women. They were underrepresented in government. They were making less to the dollar than men. At the time, it was more so than in any other country besides Malta, any other uh, European country besides Malta. And I wanted to draw a parallel between this guy's vision of women in his sex life, 
in media, and his policies for women. A lot of people compared, maybe they still do, Trump to Berlusconi. Do you see that? Of course. They're both these like <laughs> bald, orange-haired guys who say outrageous, objectifying things about women. I mean, Berlusconi has some charm, and Trump does not. That's a difference. But both of them don't care a fig about making policies that are good for women. So there's that. And both of them come from media. And both of them come from real estate. You know, I mean, they do actually have quite a lot in common. Hopefully the next thing they have in common is... <laughs> this one gets brought down pretty fast. That would be fast. great. I mean, it, with Berlusconi, there were two decades, so let's hope it's not like that. The media failed on Trump for so many reasons and continues to, but I guess that's another story. The New Yorker, though, has been... Hammering away. I don't think we're failing at that story. I think we're hammering away. I mean, I think the struggle at the New Yorker is, I mean, I think David's very aware of, okay, we got to be careful not to only do stories about Trump. Because you need a break sometimes. You need to think about Catherine Opie or whatever, Elizabeth Strout, something, some of the time. Other, You can't only ever think about how horrible this president is. You can think about it a lot, but occasionally one needs a break. For you, at least, you don't have to focus in that area unless you want it. There's no avoiding it, right? There's no story you can do right now where Trump doesn't come up. It's in everything. It's, it's in a story about Kathy Opie. It's in a story about Elizabeth Strout. You can't just step out of that world. It's, he's the most powerful man in the world. I mean, it's a horror. It's ghastly. I want to ask you about a drug called ayahuasca, which I've never heard of. Maybe I'm just... It's big in your neck of the woods. Yeah, that's it's why I was huge. reading about it's it. It's huge like... in Silicon Valley. I mean, it's, it's a big thing all over. It's this Peruvian hallucinogen. And everyone had told me, you have to try this. It's going to change your life. You know, it's scary. You might see your own death. You might see your, your, your lost child. You might, you know, it's going to be very scary, but it's worth it. It's going to change your life. I didn't have that experience. It had no effect on me. I mean, I puked like everyone else, but that's it. And then someone else puked on me. So it, it was not a, you know, it was fascinating. I mean, it was an interesting sort of subculture to write about. And um, it was fun. It was really fun researching how the drug works and the history of the drug and the culture of the, of, around it, you know, in America and these sort of um, ayahuasca tourism retreats in Peru. But the drug itself, the experience of doing the drug itself was extremely underwhelming and huh. smelly. And smelly. It was very vomity. It was a lot of vomit. Worse than my early LSD days. Yeah. I don't think you did. No one vomited on you while you were doing your early LSD. No. Yeah. No now, ayahuasca, there's always vomit. Almost always. Ariel Levy, what do you have coming up in The New Yorker? You mentioned something a few minutes ago. Yeah. I'm doing a profile of Elizabeth Strout because she has a new book coming out. She has a collection called Anything is Possible. And if everything goes according to plan, that piece will be on stands Monday, April 24th. And this book, I'm, I'm going around the country with the rules do not apply. Are you thinking about another book down the road, or is that too far? You know, I have little twinklies, little twinklies in my head, little thoughts, but not, I'm not started on anything. And one final question about the book. It's been getting rave reviews. Has it been optioned yet? No. And I'm ready when they are. <laughs> I am ready when they are. Uh, you can find out more about Arielle Levy by going to her website, 
or to the New Yorker where you can see a complete list of all of her profiles. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.